Welcome to the Journey to Medicine podcast, where you'll find fascinating stories from Stanford students and faculty about their struggles, setbacks, and successes in their journey. Follow along as these conversations help inspire and empower you. And now, your host, Sarita Kamani, faculty at Stanford. My guest today is Dr. Sergio Torres. Dr. Torres is a Stanford faculty and hospital medicine physician and also my very good friend and colleague. Welcome, Sergio. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Sarita. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Let's, uh, before we go back in, and listen to your journey, any recent books or shows or medical-related things that uh, you would recommend? Yeah, they're not new and they're maybe not so medically related, but um, it does kind of, I think, go into how you know, medicine is unpredictable for the patients and the family members of the patients, but also for the physicians. And so I think the books that I would recommend or uh, the movie that I would recommend kind of speak to that, even though they have nothing to do directly with medicine. The movies, and they're both pretty old, but the movie is called Barry Lyndon. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a Stanley Kubrick movie. It's not one of your, his more famous ones. And then books-wise, you know, I, I grew up in Mexico, so I read a lot of more uh, Latin American literature growing up. So from Garcia Marquez, Amor en los tiempos del cólera, Love in the Time of Cholera. I think it's called that mm -hmm. in English. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, they, they just kind of talk about how, you know, when you start life, you might have one expectation of how things are going to unfold. And of course, it never ends up happening that way. And it also kind of explores the, how the characters, they start off thinking of themselves in one way. And uh, they, they end up having a very different sort of realization of who they really are as time passes, which I think is really interesting because sometimes we're very rigid in sort of our own identity or who we think that we are and what we think we want. But that also changes with time. And I think it's important to kind of keep that flexibility in medicine as well. And that sort of humility, you know, that we're not in control all the time, that things can change even, uh, you know, even when we don't want them to. That's such an important point. So I, I'm definitely going to look into those. Uh, thank you. So you just mentioned that you grew up in Mexico. So let's go back and tell us a little bit about your growing up. Did you have any influence that made you think about medicine? No, not really. So growing up in Mexico, I'm one of four. I'm the oldest of four. And my, my dad, is a, he has a, a business, a lumber company. And my mother, she was an architect by training, but she, you know, devoted herself to the to the house and child rearing. And um, I'm the first one in my family to go to medicine in my kind of close family. I do have a couple of cousins that are in it as well, but very few really. My, the family on my father's side is very large. He's one of 10. Mm -hmm. And each of his siblings has at least, you know, four children. So it's a lot of cousins. <laughs> and from all of those, there's, you know, one dentist, one ob obstetrician, and then me. So it's mm -hmm. not a very, like, heavy on medicine family. And on my mother's side, it's a smaller family, but same story. No no physicians or nurses or anything. My, my upbringing was, you know, pretty blessed, I have to say you know, we never really wanted for anything. And it was a pretty peaceful childhood. The city that I grew up in right now is a very large city. But when I was growing up, it was, you know, a smaller town, it felt pretty safe. And it was kind of an easy childhood. My kind of introduction to medicine came more in my adolescence, I kind of started developing a 
curiosity about biology and things like that. And this, I always had this sort of desire to find a way to help people that had been less fortunate than me. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how that started. You know, growing up, I, like I was saying, I, you know, I had a pretty blessed childhood, but not very far from where I grew from, where my house was. In that city, there was there was like a small township inside the city. In a, it's a very like mountainous region of Mexico, mm -hmm. and so in certain parts where the water kind of flows down, you can't really build there. So that land was always left empty. But some people that didn't have resources kind of built their homes there, and they when they left that part of the village to enter the town, they would walk by my street. So I would kind of see that uh, very close to me there were these people that were a lot less fortunate, and I always had this discomfort of like why why are our lives so different you know and, and is there anything that i can do to make you know mm -hmm. to make a difference there for example one of the things that would made me feel that way is every you know every 26th of december after we all got our christmas gifts and everything on mm -hmm. the 25th the children from that village would come up kind of asking for maybe the old toys that kids wanted to give away mm -hmm. and i always thought like well, this is kind of ridiculous that santa claus mm -hmm. brings you know toys to the kids that are well off and yeah. then leaves the ones that are not <laughs> kind of behind mm -hmm. so that's kind of where my disquiet for that kind of uh, injustice and that desire to kind of do something different came from it came from an earlier age but I, I didn't know where to direct it until i started learning more about biology and found interest in that and then kind of where it became more cemented was when i was 16 17 or 16 probably I went on a like a religious uh, mission. Really, it's common in Mexico for people to go to sort of the poorer areas of the country to to try to teach people about religion. Even though I wasn't a very religious person, but I just thought it would be an interesting experience. Was it as part of uh, like a school pro thing program, or is it, it from was, family? It was no neither, because like my father is an atheist, and my mother is not particularly okay. <laughs> uh, devout either. I just to be honest with you, it was more just to take advantage of the opportunity to go see something and maybe help mm -hmm. out. And so my best friend and I decided to go down. So we went to a small town in the center of Mexico called Atotonilco el Grande. It's a very small town, mm -hmm. kind of in the hills, a very interesting landscape because uh, the soil is kind of red, like it would be like in Sedona mm -hmm. or in other parts of mm -hmm. Arizona, but it's also more lush, the vegetation. It's a very beautiful part of the country, but very poor. And so, you know, him and I went down there to see, you know, just to see what, if we could do anything to help out. And while we were there, trying to maybe teach a little bit about religion, even though neither of us was an expert, that we found out very quickly that the, the questions that people had were in no way related to religion. And they were always related to health, either to sexual health or maybe they had an older family member that was having some symptoms that they didn't know where they were coming from or a child that had a developmental delay and they wanted to know more about that. So I realized very quickly like, oh, this is what's really kind of, people really want help with this mm -hmm. part of it. And that's kind of where, when it clicked and both him and I both decided to pursue a career in medicine. We're both now in internal medicine in the US. So at that time when you decided that it looks like this is one of the ways to help people, did you have idea of what a career in medicine looked like? I had no idea. No idea whatsoever. Yeah, my, you know, when I told my dad that, hey, you know, I'm going to pursue a career in medicine, he was devastated because he was sure that, you know, he had read about how the life of a physician is very difficult. So he was really opposed. Plus, you know, I'm the oldest one. He thought, you know, I was going to take over the family business mm. and all these things. So after I told him, 
because it's actually the way it came about like we were walking around his business because i used to work with him every summer and every uh, every winter break and that was a i had to make a decision about what my career was going to be because in, in mexico there's no college you start medical school right after high school so you mm -hmm. have to make that decision when you're 17 because you have to start the application process mm -hmm. and then you start university when you're 18. So you kind of have to know whether you want to be you know, a doctor or an yeah. architect or a lawyer or, or whatever mm -hmm. it is that you want to do. You kind of have to decide at 17. So we were walking around the business and he said, like, oh, this is where your office is going to be. And so I told him, yes, sorry, <laughs> but I'm not going to be joining your business. I'm going to pursue a career in medicine. And so he was pretty disappointed. Yeah. And every day he would leave a little article about how the life of physicians are horrible. <laughs> <these things. laughs> and after about a couple of weeks of that, because we weren't talking at that point, after a couple of weeks of that, he just left an anatomy book on my desk. And that was his oh. way of saying, all right, mm -hmm. go for it. <laughs> so that's uh, so he came around and he saw that yeah. you were actually serious about it, not just I think of, so. you know, something you heard from your friends. And uh, what about your mom? Was she supportive? My other career option in my mind when I was 17 was to be a writer. And she was like, no, they're going to, you know, they're going to, never make any money if you pursue that so if those are the two options then i'd rather you pursue medicine but she was more supportive at the beginning both of them eventually came around and, mm -hmm. and after that they were they were uh, very supportive all along so um at 17 you made the decision and what is the way of entering the med schools is uh, do you have to take exams how do you apply yeah, in Mexico, so Mexico has a large sort of public system for your for university, for higher education, and there's also private schools. They have different exams that they take. The one that I took is a sort of SAT-based exam. It's not like the MCAT at all. It's more like the SAT. So yeah, you take that test and, and then you apply to the medical schools that you want to go to. Yeah, it's, it's a more straightforward process, I think, than in the U.S., because in the U.S., I think that the number of positions for medical students are more restricted. In Mexico, we, you know, Mexico produces a lot of physicians, which has a, another sort of set of problems because mm -hmm. there's so many doctors that uh, the salary for physicians is really low because the supply of physicians is so large. So, yeah, I, I didn't know any of that at the, at the moment when I was applying. I just need to study for my SAT equivalent test and, and, and start. Getting into med schools in the U.S. is pretty competitive. Is it uh, similar in Mexico or is it easier? It's, it's uh, competitive for the private schools hmm. because the, the positions in the private schools are a lot more limited. And because of the, the tuition for Mexico, it's, it's a, you know, going to the public medical schools is free, basically. You have to pay for your textbooks, but you don't... Uh, you don't have to pay tuition or the tuition is very minimal. And compared to that, the, the private schools are expensive. And so for many students that want to apply to those, you also need to compete for the um, scholarships. And so it makes it a little bit more competitive. It doesn't feel to me from talking to U.S. Re you know, residents and physicians that the process is as arduous in, in mm -hmm. even for the private schools in Mexico as it is in general in the United States. Do they give you admission into multiple or you get to choose one? I only applied to two. Okay. Uh, usually the, the public school where I, in my hometown, takes about 400 medical students per semester. And the private school, the one that I ended up going to at that moment was taking a, about 120 students. Mm -hmm. So I applied to those two schools and I had done pretty well in high school, kind of out of, out of luck, really. 
but that's a story for a, for a different <laughs> session. But in any case, I, I because I had done well in high school, they took into consideration your scores from high school, mm-hmm. and that helped me out a lot. Okay. Yeah. And then once you enter, is it a six-year program? Yes, it's a six-year program. I think when, I, yes, it was six years. Sometimes there's five and a half, other ones are six and a half. And then when you finish medical school, you have to do one year of social service for the government. So basically, I mean, they give you a salary, but it's they might as well not give you one because it's so small. But the idea is that's how Mexico guarantees healthcare for everybody. It's just requesting that physicians, nurses, dentists, they have to do, I think it's six months for dentists and one year for physicians, that social service. So they'll send you to a, a underserved area of the country and you stay there for the year and you're basically the physician for the township where they they send you. The other way that you can do it, which is the way that I ended up doing it, was doing research. So if you had, you know, if you had done well in medical school and, and you had a project, you could present that to the government. And if they if they liked it, they would allow you to, to do that. Okay. Once you were in medical school, was there any point where you thought that maybe you made the wrong decision? Yes, many, <laughs> many times. Well, let me start from the beginning. So in the first few years of medical school, they kind of send us off to the hospitals to just to get a sense of it because they they want to kind of scare people out that are not going to have what it takes to finish the career. So, for example, I think it was in my second year, they sent us to this public hospital and that was pretty underfunded. In the first night, I remember they kind of had us break up the night into uh, 45 minutes shifts where we would be basically the ventilator for the patient, right? Because we didn't mm-hmm. have enough ventilators. So we would basically sit next to an intubated patient connected to an ambu bag and just ventilate them manually for the mm-hmm. entire night and, you know, however long it took for a ventilator to become available. So that was, you know, pretty horrible. And it, it happened infrequently, but it happened that a medical student is there ventilating the patient. It's 4 a.m. They're very tired. They fell asleep. They wake up a few minutes later and the patient's dead. And so that that was certainly a moment where, it, I don't know, if it, if it didn't make me question whether I wanted to be a physician, it did make me kind of question sort of the, the system and uh, mm-hmm. how that was going to work. And then my I started my clinicals with surgery. And I remember that was kind of a mess as well. But in a different way with one of my first attendings who was um, a general surgeon, he had this patient with epigastric pain, which was clearly, you know, some form of gastritis or peptic ulcer disease, but that maybe is something that you can't really operate on. So my attending was really trying to make it into cholecystitis. So, you know, we got an ultrasound first, there was nothing there, no signs of inflammation. And he said, well, you know, the sensitivity of an ultrasound is only 85% for this. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do a CT scan and the CT scan comes back negative. And he says, well, you know, the sensitivity is only 92%. So we're going to do a HIDA scan. He does the HIDA scan and it comes back negative. And he says, well, there's nothing like the physical exam. And he takes the patient to the operating room, removes the gallbladder, sends it to pathology. There, there wasn't any cholecystitis. You know, the, the patient's post-operative day one, recovering from his cholecystitis. The epigastric pain is, of course, unchanged. Mm. finally decides to start him on a PPI or something, right? Mm -hmm. And I confronted him about it. I was a little bit naive. You know, it was my first kind of, it was my first patient, my first uh, clinical experience. And when I was kind of, okay, you know, from the beginning, really the the symptoms that the patient was complaining about pointed us more towards peptic ulcer disease and all the tests came back negative over Mm -hmm. and over again. And he kind of scolded me a little bit and said, you know, medicine is a little bit like Hollywood. And I was 
mm. taken aback because okay. I, I didn't agree with that philosophy at all, mm -hmm. you know. But I think those two moments for di very different reasons kind of made me question a little bit, you know, the limitations of medicine or how that can become a little bit more complex than when you're a student and you, don't, you haven't seen all those things, you're not aware, you know, that not everybody's practicing medicine in the best of ways or that the system sometimes is not set up for, for success yeah. for the patients. After you continued during med school, at some point you thought of uh, applying to U.S. residencies? Yes, absolutely. So the way that that happened is my, my medical school, the, at, the mo at that time when I was in the, in the school, the dean of the medical school had been a medicine resident at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And so he had maintained a relationship with that medical school and, and he would send students over to, to Baylor and to other medical schools in the U.S. as well. They had developed a relationship with Hopkins and with Harvard, I think, and they had different places that you could go. So I rotated at Baylor for one of my those electives that you could do away electives. And um, yeah, when I, you know, when I came over and saw sort of the the difference in the system and in the remuneration of physicians and all of that. Because, you know, in part in Mexico, the problem is that it's all, you get remunerated for the services that you render. You're never an employee of a hospital or you're never a part of a group that can support a physician salary without having to sort of always pursuing, uh, you know, things like that, that surgery case that that, that, that mm -hmm. doctor, if he didn't perform that surgery, then he wouldn't make money. Right. Okay. So I think that that, the incentives in the U.S. are better aligned, or at least where at Baylor they were at the time. So, yeah, that, that was the experience. And it was thanks to that. That's kind of why I wanted to go to that medical school, because they had those opportunities to rotate in the U.S. And they also had some uh, rotations in Brazil and some rotations in Spain. And I wanted to kind of, you know, learn medicine from other parts as well or have the, the opportunity to go see how medicine is practiced elsewhere. And so when I went to that when I came to the U.S. for that rotation, very quickly I realized that this is where I wanted to to train, and so I started working to prepare for the steps. Because obviously in Mexico you don't have to take those, and mm -hmm. the test that you take in Mexico for the specialties is very different than than the steps in the U.S. So I never I never ended up taking that test in Mexico. I just took my steps and sort of geared my studies in that direction. And so you took the step one from Mexico, right, yeah. while you were there. And then step two, did you take it in the U.S.? Yeah, so both. I, I took that the year that I was doing the, the research, mm -hmm. which was the equivalent of social service. I was studying as well for those tests, and I took them during that time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I took them in, in Houston, in Texas. Because, you know, in, in, I don't know how it is in India. I think many of the schools might be in English, but in Mexico, obviously, all of my schooling was in Spanish. So then you have to kind of relearn, even though a lot of the terms are kind of Latin-based or Greek-based mm -hmm. and it's similar, you do have to, you know, prepare your... When I first started, like right now my English is, is fine, but when I first yeah. started, it wasn't that great. Did you have like, were there coaching classes that helped? Because I remember taking, you know, Kaplan coaching yeah, yeah. for the steps. Yeah, Absolutely. Most of my friends did. I ended up not, I, I don't know, I, I thought they were too expensive or something I, in retrospect. It was a great. It would have been a great investment, but I, I thought it was too expensive, so I shied away from them. And I don't know if I should confess this or not, but in in the, you know, people had had videos either from classes. I don't know if they were Kaplan or someone else's that they would kind of pass around. You know, yeah. so I used those videos, some audio recordings, and then just the the Q the Q Bank books and uh, an online Q Bank as well. 
U world, I think. Mm-hmm. U world, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So when I was doing my research, I I, I was doing um, research in cardiovascular aging. So I had to do echocardiograms of the mice that we were doing research with. And so when I was doing the echoes, I was just playing the the audio or the video mm-hmm. and just listening to that all day long as I did my my work. Because it was it was a good thing that a lot of my work was kind of more mechanical, like doing the echoes or doing. Mm-hmm. We also would do surgery on the mice. We would band the, the aorta to produce left ventricular hypertrophy and models of that, even though it's a little bit artificial. But so while I was doing those surgeries and everything, just listening to the recordings over and over again, <laughs> I would dream about them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you think your research experience helped you also to get into a residency spot? I think it did because I, I was doing that, that research. I, it was in conjunction with Baylor. Hmm. So the primary investigator for the research that I was doing was a very well-liked physician there. Uh, he's a geriatrician, George Taffet, and um, he was an amazing mentor and, and very helpful in kind of connecting me to the program director and to other faculty members at Baylor and kind of wrote a, a strong letter for me. And, and uh, so in that way, yeah, certainly the research itself, maybe not so much, but the contacts and, and sort of mm-hmm. the experience always. How did you decide you would pursue internal medicine. Why not surgery or some other field? I don't know. It kind of came pretty... The, the only other thing that I ever considered was psychiatry when I was starting medical school. But after that, during my clinical rotations, you know, I, I hated I hated being inside the operating room. I couldn't stand it. So when we were like, when I was doing my surgical rotation, I would give up my OR time to go just basically do like, you know, wound stuff mm-hmm. in the on the floor and, and try to do medical stuff on the floor, even though the surgical residents couldn't have cared less <laughs> about what I was doing yeah. at the moment, but I just had an inclination towards that sort of, uh, yeah, pharmacology and the more sort of chemical and part of, of medicine. Yeah. And it just directed mm-hmm. me in that way. Psychiatry, I tried at the beginning, I, we had a, every year we had a fair at my at a school so that we would, you know, host the other students, you know, law school, or architecture, everybody else would come by and we would have different little things. And I was in charge of the mental health stand. And just from those, it was a two-day thing. And from talking to the, you know, students from other schools that came by just to share their questions, uh, I was so exhausted <laughs> just from because yeah. it's it's a it's a heavy profession for mm-hmm. sure. My my wife is a psychiatrist, and mm-hmm. I take off my hat for all psychiatrists. It's a it's a it's difficult it's work, a, and yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you applied for residency, did you apply to multiple programs? And I applied. Then, yeah. I applied to 83 programs mm. and I got 11 invitations to interview. And then you ended up going to Baylor or where did, I did. you? Yeah, okay. I did, yeah. Right. So they were my first choice and I, I was lucky to get in that year. I think there were 800 international medical graduates that mm. submitted an application to Baylor and I was the only one that was let in because it's it had become, I, I don't know the sort of the intricacies of it, but for several medical schools, I think it's, the financial burden of taking on an international medical graduate is sometimes prohibitive. As, and I think in Texas in particular, they were making a push to make sure that all of Texas medical students were matched. They didn't. Mm. So they had some incentive mm. to make sure that their students found spots as well in their schools. Before my, my class, there were usually four or five international medical graduates per year. And then I think ever since then, it's been one or two at Baylor. I don't know how it is at you know, other institutions. but 800 and then just one to get yeah. in. That's a, that's a tough one. Yeah. That's pretty bad odds. Yeah. Yeah. For many, actually, I think it's the visa status also that makes a difference, right? 
that's true. Yeah. And then that's actually, said, yeah, yeah. That, that made a difference in my case because, you know, the city that I grew up in, Monterey, is very close to the U.S. border. And it was a common practice when the time when I was born and probably still to, although now it's harder, but to drive up to the United States uh, and have your baby delivered in the mm -hmm. U.S., both because many people felt that the quality of the service was going to be a little bit better, but then also to have a citizenship. So my mother did that. She, you know, she drove when her labor started basically, and, and mm -hmm. I was born in the U.S. Okay. Uh, so that certainly made made a big difference, not only in sort of as a candidate, it, it certainly makes it easier for for a school to take you because they don't have to mm -hmm. pay any of the visas. And then later in life, you don't have to do the waiver. You don't have to go back to your country to, you know, you don't have yeah. to do all those things to mm -hmm. uh, to become a green card holder and all of that. So I, I am very grateful to my parents for having made that decision, even though I think yeah. that some, sometimes they regret it because <laughs> they think that maybe without it, I would be <laughs> still. It would be this. harder and then you might stay back there. I might have stayed yeah. home. So once you started your residency, was it difficult initially because I know that it can be a very different system. Although in your case, you had been, you know, at Baylor in some capacity or the other. Yeah. And also, you know, in Mexico, the, the internship year is your last year of medical school. When you start mm -hmm. residency, kind of, you know, how in the U.S. there's certain, for example, let's say that you want to be an ophthalmologist and then you have to choose whether you're going to do your prelim year in, in medicine or in surgery or something like that, right? In Mexico, the, the common internship year is the last year of medical school. So I, I had done that already. And um, there's no duty hour restrictions in Mexico, of course. So we were working about 110 hours a week mm -hmm. during that year. And then your post-call day, you didn't get to go home. It, it, it was just a normal day. So if you had to go to clinic until 7 p.m. at night, that's what you would do. If you had a test post-call, it didn't matter. Like they, they didn't care basically where your call schedule looked like. And we were on call every third or every fourth night, depending on the service that we were on. So when I actually, when I started internal medicine in the U.S. and there was an 80-hour restriction and for the internship, they, that was the first year where you couldn't, I think, work more than 16 hours in a row. I thought it was heaven, you know, I was like, this is wonderful. <laughs> so, so that was nice that while, you know, some of my colleagues felt that it was heavy for me, it felt great because it was a lot less hours than, than it that I had done when I was in Mexico. The and language how about, part of it. Yeah, the language and how about the cases? Were they different? And, the, you know, the terminology, uh, yeah. the tests, it, yes. I remember one of, the, one of my first sort of presentations was to pre-renowned endocrinologist in her clinic. And, you know, I was presenting the case and she, she just looked befuddled, you know, she couldn't understand a word. <laughs> I, was, I was nervous <laughs> on top of it. And uh, she just said something like, I can't believe the quality of students that they're letting into residency these days <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I was pretty devastated. But um, no, after, after that, I think once the, the language or once I started relaxing and, and people are pretty tolerant in Texas too of heavy accents and stuff. I know mm -hmm. I don't have one anymore, but having Spanish was a, a big plus. Mm -hmm. So I think that that also gave me some confidence, you know, the, the public hospital where we work there, it's called Bentov, and it's the largest county hospital for for Harris County. And about 70% of their patients are Hispanic. Many of them are undocumented immigrants from Latin America that don't speak English. And uh, it was beneficial that I knew how to speak Spanish and it, mm -hmm. that helped me out shine a little bit. During the three years, did you ever think that you wanted to do fellowship or just stay in internal medicine? 
I thought about doing cardiology. That was the only subspecialty that really kind of called me. But then one day we were in the CCU, I think as an intern, and we had a patient who came in with a, a STEMI induced by a pneumonia. And I was presenting the case to the attending and I was presenting my plan and talking about why I wanted these antibiotics and not those antibiotics. And he kind of just, you know, skip over that. Like, I don't do whatever you want with antibiotics. All I care about is the heart. And I was, I don't know, that just didn't, it didn't square with me. And, and I think in that moment, I was just, you know what, I, I like all of medicine. I want to try to know all of medicine. I had no idea that that was an impossible task, but in the moment I felt like it was doable and I wanted to pursue that. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's when I decided that I just wanted to stay as an internist. And I really enjoyed being in the hospital. I enjoyed my clinic as well a lot, but if I, you know, when, when it came time to choose one versus the other, since there's not a lot of places that allow you to do both. I decided to kind of stay on the hospital side of internal medicine. So after you were done, and um, was Stanford the first job? No, I no? started. So oh, no. so I graduated, and then I was offered a position as chief medical resident there. So I stayed for an extra year as, as chief medical resident. Then I stayed another year with Baylor as junior faculty. And then from there, I when my wife matched for her residency in psychiatry at USC, we moved to Los Angeles and there I worked at Kaiser for three years. And then she matched up here for her fellowship in consultation liaison. So, and that's when I joined the group here at Stanford. So mm -hmm. this is, um, I guess my six post residency year, I guess. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so now you've practiced for six years mm -hmm. and uh, do you think that uh, medicine is still what you had thought it was while you're practicing? And if it is different, then how is it different? What is challenging and what is satisfactory aspects of both? Yeah. Absolutely. No, it is. It certainly changes. I think, uh, you know, when you're a medical student and a resident, you don't have to worry about any of the financial aspects of anything. Everybody has, as a resident, kind of the salary that you get is what you get. There's nothing to be done about that. The schedule that you get is the schedule that you get. It's the same everywhere. Uh, there's very little differences. And at the time, it, I didn't feel like I could even pick, you know, I felt blessed to be let in and, and mm -hmm. I was happy. I didn't, I didn't think about that kind of thing. As time passes and, you know, you start advancing your personal life as well and you have a kid and all of this, you start to worry a little bit more about that yeah. aspect of things. So it, it, not that it changes how I view medicine, but it, it changes your calculations about you know, how much time you want to spend in the hospital, how much time you want to spend at home with family and all those things that that's certainly changed. Um, the practice of medicine for me has been changing because of the venues that I have been at. I think at the, you know, when I was, when I stayed at Baylor first, I was working at, at Bentop hospital. It's a safety net hospital and the majority of patients were underserved and were Latin American or, or Hispanics from, from the U S that were for whatever reason in, uninsured for the, for the undocumented immigrant, it's impossible to becoming to become insured, it's illegal for them to buy health insurance. And um, and that's still the case, which is also a topic for a different discussion mm -hmm. because that shouldn't be the case. But so I felt very much at home there. I was taking care of a population that I always wanted to take care of. And it's a place where I had trained and everything. So it, that was a very fulfilling job for me uh, because of the people that I was helping out. And then, you know, Kaiser was a little bit different it's a broad range of patients still and then Stanford we have at the practice that you and I are in it's a little bit more narrow focused and the demographics are also a little bit more narrow which is just a product I think of the, the geography here and the patients that have um, 
healthcare that that works with Stanford and stuff like that. So I think because I, you know, my sort of happiest place is where I'm taking care of that population that I've always felt, uh, I don't know, a liaison, you know, attachment to. Mm-hmm. You know, after exploring different venues, you might actually be doing that long term. I think so. Mm-hmm. I, that, that's what I would like to do. And, you know, here in California, the, the opportunities to do so mm-hmm. are, are, you know, they're abundant. So mm-hmm. I don't know yet where, where I'll be headed, but it, I yeah. think that's a, that's a big thing for me to, because I, I do think it's important when you're choosing your practice that you find something not only that <clears throat> that gives you, you know, a good time to spend with the family and that remunerates you well, but also that's fulfilling to you. And mm-hmm. for me, that's just really being at the bedside with, with an underserved population that has otherwise not, you know, for, for like when I'm taking care of a, an Hispanic patient and I show up and I start speaking not only in Spanish, but in a, in a sort of Spanish that is very colloquial that they feel more familiar with. They, their faces just light mm-hmm. up because they 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 know that they're going to be able to communicate what they're really feeling, and and be understood. Because trying to do it through the translator or with somebody who has Spanish as a as a second language, it's never as 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 effective as when you're communicating with somebody whose Spanish is their maternal language and and it's yours as well. You know, so I think that um, that's probably why I enjoy that practice the most because it's where I, it's easiest for me to connect with those patients. Yes, it definitely helps the patients and even us uh, if we are able to connect with them. You're absolutely right. Going through the interpreters is just not the same. And now that you've had all these experiences, if you have to give advice to somebody who is interested in medicine, what would would you tell them? Yeah, it's oh, there's so many things to say because it's uh, there's a lot of hurdles in medicine, right? In, In the different stages of medicine, each each stage has its own hurdles. So I think for me, a big lesson, especially this this last year, is that you have to sort of know what what you want out of your professional life, know, to know how you want to balance that professional life with your family life, with your social life, and try to try to pursue a path that takes you in that direction. Like when I started my path, I wasn't even asking those questions, right? You just kind of put your head down and you push forward and you don't question anything. But if you're if you do it that way, eventually it catches up with you. And when you're a physician that's fatigued or or in a bad mood, then you provide poor quality of care to your patients. So it's really important that that you pursue the path that really kind of is in harmony with who you are, so that when you take care of a patient, you can do the best job possible. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're providing good care to your patient, your patient will be happy. You'll be happy when you leave the hospital or the clinic and you go back to your house, you will show up happy and your life will kind of flourish. If you are in a path that makes it very difficult to put on a smile when you open the door to your house, then that, that'll make life inside the house difficult. And then by next morning, when you go back to work, you'll be in a bad mood and it can spiral, you know? And so it is important to, to take all those factors into consideration. I know maybe for a medical student or for an aspiring medical student, that seems so far down the road that you don't consider it. But I, I think it's important to, even if you're not making a priority of that, to have in the back of your mind kind of that those questions always floating around like well what is it that i really want for my life and how how do i want to set up my life 
when you're a student or a resident, you're just trying to finish one step after another and just trying to reach the end. But these are such important questions that show up when you really start practicing. So absolutely fabulous advice. And uh, so I will let you go. Thank you so much, Sergio, for taking out the time and sharing your journey and all the advice. Thank you, Sarita. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And now for the disclaimer. The Journey to Medicine podcast and its guests provide general information and entertainment, but not medical advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Journey to Medicine team are those of each individual and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the Journey to Medicine team and its guests, employers, sponsors, or organizations we are affiliated with. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for joining us.